Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. Gary and Greg both sent me this story, and it's widely reported. And it's one of those things where the headline looks really, really good. But the second you think about it, you realize it's probably not all it's cracked up to be. So from NPR, but widely reported, uh, Andy Gersh and Nina Totenberg wrote this. The Supreme Court adopts first ever code of ethics. And people have been talking recently about how the Supreme Court operates as it does, but does not appear to actually have any code of ethics they've got to live by. So apparently, because of all the noise about that, they decided, fine, we'll adopt a code of ethics. The question is, who will enforce it and how? So the U.S. Supreme Court recently adopted its first ever ethics code, giving into pressure from Congress and the public. All nine justices signed on to the new code, which was instantly criticized for lack of an enforcement mechanism. So the rules are in place, but it doesn't say who will enforce them. And by the way, let's assume that somewhere down the road, a Supreme Court justice retires or steps down some way or perhaps dies and gets replaced. Does the new incoming Supreme Court justice have to follow the rules or do they have to sign on to them also? In an unsigned statement, the justices said, though there has been no formal code, they have long abided by certain standards. So they claim they've been living by standards that just weren't an official code. So here's the quote. The absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in the country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. To dispel this misunderstanding, we are issuing this code, which largely represents a codification of principles that we have long regarded as governing our conduct. But did they follow those rules? Public trust in the court has fallen amid revelations that uh, and arguments that some of the justices may have received gifts of some sort uh, or failing to disclose things they were given by people uh, or money that was lent to them that they didn't have to pay back or they paid it back, they paid it back really, really uh, late and so on. And so several justices have openly and publicly said that we should have a code of ethics. Okay, so with the release of the code on Monday, the court is trying to be somewhat specific about what justices can and cannot do. But there's a lot they can do and no enforcement mechanism as to what they are supposed not to do. So as you can imagine, if I create a set of rules and say, these are rules, the first thing you ask is, what happens if you break those rules? Um, those are the rules you're supposed to follow. Okay, but what happens if someone breaks one of those rules? For example, the code is quite specific about financial transactions. Justices can make a real estate transaction as long as it is not before the court. So the code simply reaffirms the commitment to disclosure provisions that are in the existing code for all federal judges. Some people would say, why didn't they just adopt the federal judge rules? Uh, no, they're not going to do that because they're the Supreme Court. <laughs> code is also specific about recusal if family members have a case before the court or if a family member is a lawyer before the court. Now, the odds of that happening seem pretty slim, but it does say that spouses, children, and grandchildren are the ones that are mentioned here. Uh, then we start talking about what about nieces and nephews and so on. The code also makes exceptions for justices that may not apply to lower court judges. For instance, a justice does not have to recuse if his or her relative files a friend of the court brief because the court receives so many of these briefs, sometimes over 100 in a single case, and it has loosened the rules on these briefs being filed. And so 
your spouse or your relative could file a friend of the court brief, and it does not make any difference with respect to whether you recuse yourself. Uh, in recent months, critics have raised concerns uh, about the justices and some of their wives and their activities and whether or not those things mattered. Uh, others have raised concerns uh, about justices' use of court staff uh, in doing things like scheduling book tours. Now the court's new code says that for security reasons, justices are permitted to use their office resources in making plans. And the code even specifies that a justice may appear at events where their books are being sold. So if you're on the Supreme Court and you've written a book, you can do a little book tour. And there's not a problem with that. So critics, of course, are not happy because critics rarely are. (laughs) But the problem here is the code has no enforcement provision. A progressive group called Take Back the Court said, with 53 uses of the word should and only six of the word must, the court's new code of ethics reads a lot more like a friendly suggestion than a binding enforceable guideline. Uh, Another group said, while it's great to see the Supreme Court finally respond to public pressure and acknowledge they have serious ethics and corruption issues that must be addressed, the code of ethics announced today is woefully inadequate. So they went and asked a New York uh, University School of Law professor uh, about the code. He said, well, it's pretty decent. That's a quote, pretty decent. It is more detailed than I expected, even though there is no enforcement mechanism. And so I've mentioned before about the code of ethics that apply to judges. And a lot of times it'll say things like the judge should not do this and the judge should not do that. And I know that a lot of times people who aren't attorneys don't pay that much attention to words like that. But many times it'll say, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. And the second you change a shall to a should means that there's a lot of wiggle room there. And so should implies that it's not an absolute. And the question is, at what point does that gray area come into play here? And so we've talked before about the appearance of impropriety. That's, that's the one I keep getting back to. Because if you're a judge, you should avoid doing anything wrong. You should also avoid doing anything that looks wrong. So when somebody does something that appears to be wrong, and they're a judge, and it's in the public eye, and somebody goes, hey, that judge, look what they did, that's wrong. And the judge steps up and goes, well, no, I've got a perfectly good explanation for it. And they got some weird convoluted explanation for it. There was a a story about a judge in Michigan who attended a concert at a place called Pine Knob. And uh, I believe he was photographed, but at least he was seen by many people smoking before medicinal marijuana was legal. And um, people saw it. Now, of course, Pine Knob is quite a distance from where he was a judge, and he probably didn't think he'd be seen by anybody who knew who he was. People knew who he was. And so word got out that, hey, we saw this judge at this concert smoking when he shouldn't have been. And uh, he, at one point, I believe, tried to say that he didn't actually smoke it. He simply handed it from one person to another. He was sitting between two people who were breaking the law. And he simply took it from one of them and handed it to the other, but never actually did it himself, see? And that's the kind of argument that is so idiotic, because the rule says not that you have to avoid anything that is improper. You've got to avoid anything that has the appearance of being improper. And does that have the appearance of being improper when someone over here is smoking it? You take it and hand it to this person over here, 
<laughs> but you didn't puff on it. Uh, the appearance of impropriety. That is a violation of the rules. Now, if it says things like, you should uh, try to avoid this, and you should try to do that, it's not as strong as if it says, you shall. But the biggest problem here is, and it's not a loophole, it's just a missing element. It doesn't say what's going to happen if somebody breaks one of these rules. If let's, let's and I'm going to make something up here. Let's suppose that tomorrow, one of the Supreme Court justices, and it doesn't matter which side you're on, one of the Supreme Court justices breaks one of these rules publicly, flagrantly, and without question breaks one of these rules. Do the other eight get together and have a little mini trial? And if so, what can they do to the rule breaker? Because the rules don't say, and the rules don't even say how they're enforced. And so, yeah, it's a gigantic problem in that without an enforcement mechanism, rules become worthless. Can you imagine if the NFL included a bunch of rules that referees didn't throw flags about? (laughs) So on the one hand, I'm glad to see that they created the rules. On the other hand, I'd like to see them explain who is going to enforce them and how. And that will then get you to, let's suppose one of the Supreme Court justices did something as egregious and flagrant as possible. And the other eight said, here's what we think we're going to do to you. And he goes, or she goes, no, you can't do that. Your rules are unconstitutional. Oh, let's have a, let's 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 have a case on that. <laughs> Who will hear that case? Oh, the Supreme Court will. So, it it it's it's certainly uncharted water. So, Greg and Gary, thanks for sending it from NPR. Annie Gersh and Nina Totenberg wrote this version of it. The Supreme Court adopts first ever code of ethics. That's the good news. Bad news? Eh. Who's going to enforce it? They don't say. Questions or comments? Put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell.